Whichever, whichever it is, yeah. So we finished the book of Leviticus, and we're taking a bit of a break before we get back into numbers. I had asked if anybody had any suggestions for topics. One suggestion came in specifically with reference to Christian liberty, and then there was another one that was submitted that had some overlap with that theme. So I thought we'd lean on the heavy hitters that wrote our Confession of Faith in order to guide our thoughts as we tease out this doctrine of Christian liberty. So I'll read chapter 21 in its entirety beginning in paragraph 1. The liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan and dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave, and everlasting damnation, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto Him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind, all which were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them. But under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law, to which the Jewish church was subjected, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace, and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. God alone, is the Lord of, uh, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience, and the requiring of an implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also." They who, upon pretense of Christian liberty, do practice any sin or cherish any sinful lust, as they do thereby pervert the main design of the grace of the gospel to their own destruction, so they wholly destroy the end of Christian liberty, which is that being delivered out of the hands of all our enemies, we might serve the Lord without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our lives." Amen. Well, we've probably heard that term, Christian liberty, and I think we usually think in terms of paragraph two. Basically, that we have liberty not to have our consciences bound by others. But properly speaking, Christian liberty is what we find in paragraph one. That then sets the stage for what we have in paragraph two, liberty of conscience. So there's two themes being addressed. They're in inextricably connected to be sure, the one builds off the other. So essentially what you have in this chapter is the definition of Christian liberty in paragraph one, the protection of liberty of conscience in paragraph two, and then finally the qualification of Christian liberty in paragraph three. Now it's a very important subject in terms of Christianity. Uh, generally speaking, but in particularly Protestantism, because at the time of the Protestant Re Reformation, there was a lot of encroachments with reference to liberty. You not only had the civil state, the history of England, for instance, is all about kings and, and authorities and rulers based on religion carrying out specific acts and specific deeds. But as well, you have the Roman Catholic Church. And so this section is calculated to deal with both uh, civil tyranny or authoritarianism as well as ecclesiastical tyranny or authoritarianism. And as well, it's a most important doctrine for all that follows in the confession of faith. Just going to quote Renahan in his exposition of the second 
London Confession. He says, the doctrine of Christian liberty is central to our understanding of the Christian life. As Calvin says, says it, it has a direct relationship to justification. As soon as we submit to human laws and religion, we lose our freedom in Christ. He alone has a right to command what he wills, and no one may add to his commands. We could go so far as to say that this doctrine is placed here to serve as the head of the next major section. In the way that Renahan breaks down the confession, he speaks of the first principles in chapters 1 to 6, and then the covenant in chapters 7 to 20, and here in chapters 21 to 30, we have the principles of Christian liberty. He says, the order is not accidental. From chapter 21 to chapter 30, every doctrine is affected by the theology of Christian liberty. Some more than others, some more overtly and directly, but nonetheless, all are impacted. So basically, what that means is, is that this was a big deal for the Protestants at the time of the Reformation. It was a big deal for our forefathers who wrote our Confession of Faith. Remember, Baptists typically don't do well under uh, state-sponsored religion. Usually Baptists are on the outs. Usually Baptists are disenfranchised. Usually Baptists are not treated well. And then when we move on through the confession, we'll notice that the next section deals with of religious worship in the Sabbath day. So Christian liberty does not mean that we're not supposed to obey God. We're supposed to obey God. Christian liberty means we're not supposed to obey men that contravene the word of God. So chapter 22 emphasizes the religious significance of the Sabbath day and worship in general. Chapter 23 speaks of oaths and vows as a part of religious worship. And then in chapter 24, you have the civil magistrate. Again, all of these things are connected to this doctrine of Christian liberty. And then chapter 25 of marriage, God governs, God has ordained and instituted marriage, and it's God alone who has the authority to dictate how marriage is carried out. It's not the civil state that can contravene that and change the definition from one man and one woman to one man and five women, or to uh, one man and one man, or a woman and a woman. It is not the right of the civil state or an ecclesiastical body to contradict or contravene the word of God. And of course, the church is governed by our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're not subject to the Pope of Rome. We have that liberty. We're no longer under that totalitarian figure. The time of the Protestant Reformation sort of uh, separated us from him, and thankfully so. And then, of course, in chapters 28 to 30, you have an emphasis on the sacraments. And again, the sacraments are not up to a church to specify how they are to be observed. Rather, they are strictly given by our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are subject to him. So we might just uh, sort of bring down to uh, an, uh, its essence with reference to Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. If you look at the beginning of paragraph two, this is the most important thing that we should take away. God alone is Lord of the conscience, and he has the absolute authority to command us. Man does not insofar as he is saying something other than the word of God. So let's look first at the definition of Christian liberty in paragraph one. Notice the liberty in the new covenant. You see that in that first section. And basically it speaks of deliverance. If you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, you have a wonderful statement by the Baptist's father, and he underscores this idea of Christian liberty. I don't think he said it, 
specifically to deal with the Protestant Reformation and the battle for Christian liberty. But notice what we see in Luke chapter 1, specifically at verse 74 in Zacharias's prophecy. Well, just backing up uh, to verse, yeah, let's say verse 72. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And I think that's what this first paragraph is all about. We're delivered from our enemies such that now we're enabled and free to serve God without fear. So when you look at that first paragraph and that first section in the new covenant, we have deliverance. Notice, the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin. You see that? Say, for instance, well, you can turn there, Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, two passages there underscore this freedom from the guilt of sin. Romans 8, verse 1, famously, the Apostle Paul tells us, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then over in verse 33 of chapter 8, Notice, he says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So we have been freed from the guilt of sin through the power of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice as we move through the confession, we're also free from the power of sin. It's always good to consider that in our salvation. Not only the penalty of sin is something we're freed from, but also the power of sin. So the Lord Jesus Christ and his work for us has freed us from that penalty of sin. The Spirit's work in us helps us in terms of the power of sin. And you see both things in the New Testament. We are freed from the curse of the law, Galatians chapter 3. And we now are empowered by the Spirit to pursue those things that are pleasing to God Almighty. So there's a freedom from guilt. There's a freedom from the power of sin. And then notice finally there the freedom from the punishment of sin. It goes on. So the liberty which Christ hath purchased for believers under the gospel consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin, the condemning wrath of God, the rigor and curse of the law, and in their being delivered from this present evil world, bondage to Satan, dominion of sin, from the evil of afflictions, the fear and sting of death, the victory of the grave and everlasting damnation. Now, it doesn't mean that there'll be no afflictions in the life of the Christians, uh, life of the believer, but there'll be no evil in those afflictions. The psalmist was able to say, it is good for me that I was afflicted. Why? Because prior to his affliction, he had gone astray from the Lord. The Lord oftentimes uses affliction and difficulty in the lives of his people to draw them to himself. And so when it speaks of the evil of, of afflictions, we shouldn't read that in a health, wealth, prosperity sort of gospel way. It's not the case that there'll be no afflictions in the lives of God's people. That's not what we're freed from. Rather, we're freed from the evil connected to affliction that comes in terms of judgment or chastisement or punishment for unbelief. So then from this deliverance, we also have privilege. And specifically, the confession highlights too. 
It goes on to say, as also in their free access to God and their yielding obedience unto him, not out of slavish fear, but a childlike love and willing mind. So we have this privilege of free access to God. We've seen that as we move through the book of Ephesians. In fact, you can turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, free access to the presence of God Almighty. Ephesians 2, specifically at verse 18, For through him, Christ, we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit to the Father. So that's Trinitarianism 101, but it shows our benefit to come to the Father through the Son in the Spirit. And then again in verse 22, In whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And then if you look specifically at chapter 3 at verse 19, the last petition that the Apostle Paul prays in that brief section is that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. When I preached that, I argued that the background was Old Covenant temple. Remember when Solomon built the temple and they dedicate that temple to God, the Shekinah glory of the Lord falls upon the, 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 the temple. So the temple was filled with the fullness of God. Paul is saying that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, as they gather, gather together on the Lord's day, that he wants them to be filled with all of God's fullness. The way the Shekinah glory came down upon Old Covenant Solomon is the way that he wants that, that glory to come upon the people of God. And then turn over to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10. Again, speaking of that free access to God that we possess in this new covenant as a result of justification. Hebrews 10, 19, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with, true, with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart. This free access to God that the apostle speaks of is what our confession encapsulates here. But not only that, we have the rendering of a childlike obedience to God, a childlike love and willing mind. We have that because we're born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. We have that because we've passed from death unto life. We have that because we are now blessed, adopted sons and daughters of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the confession here highlights what that liberty looks like in the New Covenant. And in the latter half of that paragraph, it deals with the Old Covenant as well. It says, all which were common also to believers under the law for the substance of them. Remember, believers under the law were believers in Jesus Christ. They were not those who are, you know, satisfying all of the demands of God in terms of the revealed law of God. They were not able to do that. They were not able to obey, you know, exactly and entirely and perpetually. They were looking at the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of the promises God had given and in terms of the types and uh, sacrifices that they had. So this was present under the Old Covenant, but it wasn't by virtue of the Old Covenant. It was by virtue of the New Covenant, because the Old Covenant was a republication of the Covenant of Works. But when it goes on to say, but under the New Testament, the liberty of Christians is further enlarged. They're not saying life was bad as a believer under the Old Covenant. They're saying what the Apostle essentially says in Hebrews 7 and 8. The New Covenant is a better covenant founded on better promises that affords a better hope. 
And so what we have in the New Covenant does surpass what they had in the Old Covenant. And one of the blessings that we see specifically is in their freedom from the yoke of the ceremonial law. If you turn to Galatians chapter 5, I think that's what Paul is celebrating when he says what he says there. If not celebrating, polemicizing. He's attacking the Judaizers and their attempt to get the believers to take the signs, uh, sign of circumcision and to uh, pay careful obedience to the Jewish calendar in addition to belief in the Messiah for their salvation. So Paul says, no, you're justified by God's grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not a mixture of faith and works. It's not a bit of faith and a bit of circumcision. It's faith alone in Christ alone. Before we look at 5.1, look at Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. And then in 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes to the law, then Christ died in vain. This is, in the language of J. Gresham Machen, a fighting epistle. The apostle comes out of the gate in Galatians 1 to condemn anyone that would teach another way to our God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's not Christ plus circumcision. Christ plus the calendar, it's Christ alone. And so that's what causes Paul to say what he does in chapter 5 in verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So again, I think we listen or we hear that phrase, Christian liberty, and we think it has to do with beer. We hear Christian liberty and we think it has to do with dancing. We hear Christian liberty and we think it has to do with wardrobe. Now, it might a little bit later on, but the primary emphasis of Christian liberty is the freedom that we have as justified by grace through faith in Christ alone believers. That's what Christian liberty means, and that's the emphasis here. So they have freedom in the new covenant from the yoke of the ceremonial law to which the Jewish church was subjected. We just went through the book of Leviticus. Now there's certainly moral law in the book of Leviticus, but the accent in Leviticus is on ceremonial law. It's the approach to God in the old covenant and all that was necessary in terms of the cult there. There was a tabernacle, there was a priesthood, there was a sacrificial system, all those things fulfilled by our Lord Jesus Christ and so therefore no longer binding upon new covenant believers. And he goes on, or it goes on to say, and in greater boldness of access to the throne of grace and in fuller communications of the free spirit of God than believers under the law did ordinarily partake of. It's very important that we get that. Did ordinarily partake of. If you're like me and you read the Psalms of David, you would like a whole lot more of what David had in terms of corporate worship. You would like a whole lot more of his free access to God. But in terms of the ordinary day-in and day-out life of Old Covenant believers, there is a comparatively better situation that obtains in the New Covenant because Christ has come to fulfill all that the Old Testament typified concerning Him. So that's what Christian liberty is. Properly speaking, it is our freedom from sin and it is our deliverance to the blessed privileges of access to God and a childlike love and 
willing mind in our service to him. Now that brings us then to paragraph two, the really controversial stuff. <laughs> paragraph two deals with, as I said, the liberty of conscience. This was a corollary to Christian liberty that was necessary so that, one, persons wouldn't say, well, if you believe paragraph one, then you can just go live any way you want. Well, the Apostle Paul had to counter that in his own ministry. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? People are always going to misinterpret. And so what happens is when you hear the freedom and the blessedness and the liberty of paragraph one, there might be those libertines that come along and say, well, then it doesn't really matter how you live. Well, no, the corollary here, the addition here in paragraph two is the protection of liberty of conscience. And Van Drunen, uh, David Van Drunen, in a book called Natural Law and Two Kingdom Theology, or uh, Natural Law and the Two Kingdoms, he says, Reformed theologians and confessions spoke of Christian liberty in regard to the justified individual. Again, that's going back to Calvin. Calvin spoke of Christian liberty in specific con uh, uh, connection to justification by faith which makes perfect sense. I don't think we think that way, but if we're justified by faith, we have liberty and peace with God. And therefore, we are not bound to the recommendations or the suggestions of men that come. Now, now the recommendations and suggestions aren't a bad thing. I just want to make that clear. Preferences aren't a bad thing. But what usually happens with recommendations, suggestions, and preferences? Well, I don't know, sometimes people elevate those to thus saith the Lord. Sometimes people take those and because they see it as the most profitable way to live the Christian life, they impose that on their fellows. So back to Van Drunen, Reformed theologians and confessions spoke of Christian liberty in regard to the justified individual who was freed in the civil kingdom from any obligation to do things contrary to the te teachings of scripture and in the spiritual kingdom from any obligation to do things beside the teaching of scripture. So if the civil state tells you to do something contrary to the Bible, you don't have to obey him. If an ecclesiastical authority tells you or commands you to do something besides the Bible, you are not uh, duty-bound to God to obey him. So that's what's in view here. So look first at that foundational principle I've already shown you, or I've already read there. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. That's it. It's not the Pope. It's not the prime minister, it's not the president, it is rather God alone. He is the Lord of the conscience. And if that's our governing principle, then I think we've got our minds pretty well wrapped around this protection of liberty of conscience. So if God alone is Lord of the conscience, then what does that mean? It means we're free from the doctrines of men. It means that we're free from the tyranny of the civil state. Now, I'm not suggesting that when you exercise that freedom, the civil state's going to give you a pass. I'm not suggesting that at all because you know that you might end up in jail as a result. But you have a freedom before God to do what God commands that, that, that cannot be contravened by what man commands. So that's the foundational principle. Now I want to draw out some implications. Notice the freedom given by God. So after that fundamental principle, God alone is Lord of the conscience, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. 
None of this should surprise any of us. This is what we would expect with an open Bible. God has the absolute right, and God alone, to command us what we are to do and what we are to believe. Nobody has the right, in terms of your conscience, to violate it. And that's what the confession is highlighting. And again, this principle of liberty that we see here in Galatians 5.1, this isn't simply a new covenant principle. Remember the principle of liberty in the book of Leviticus in chapter 25. You had the sabbatical year every seventh year, and then you had the year of Jubilee. What was the predicate for that? Liberty, freedom. God is okay with you being free. In fact, God is pro-freedom, pro-liberty. You see that in the Exodus. You see that there in the celebration of Zacharias when he extols the goodness of the God of the covenant. He has delivered us from our enemies so that we might now serve him with fear. So this freedom by God protects us first from the contravention of the Bible by civil authority. Civil authority does not have a right to contravene the written word of God, specifically with reference to preaching the gospel. You see that in Acts 4 and Acts 5. When the authorities commanded the apostles not to preach, the apostles said, we must obey God rather than men. As well, the authority does not have the right to tell you not to meet for worship. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 10, if I would have continued reading, we would read in verse 24 in chapter 10, Let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Now, the New King James uh, capitalizes the word day there. And I think the idea is, is that it's the day of judgment. So as we approach the day of judgment, we're not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. I think a better understanding is the day of judgment in A.D. 70. In other words, these Christian, these uh, Hebrew Christians are being given a letter by the Apostle Paul a couple of years, a few years, prior to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. There was a lot of pressure put upon Jewish Christians to leave Jesus and go back to Moses. Well, the whole book of Hebrews is about don't leave Jesus to go back to Moses. Jesus is superior. He's over the uh, prophets. He's over the angels. He's over Joshua. He's over Moses. He is the mediator of the new covenant, a surety of a better covenant. And so if you understand it that way, and again, there's some difference in, in terms of interpretation. What, what is that telling you? So this day of judgment is coming in AD 70. What isn't the answer? Sell everything and run. That is the answer in Matthew 24 as the Roman armies start to descend upon the city. But at this particular stage, what would you be tempted to do? Well, we can't go to church. We got to, you know, clean our guns. We, we can't go to church. We got to, you know, go through our canned hams. We, we can't go to church. We got to make sure all our gear is prepped and ready to go. No. When the day of judgment is coming, that doesn't mean that you are not still obligated to go to the house of God to worship our blessed Savior. And so when it comes to this reality, we are not to be subject to the civil authority insofar as they overstep their boundaries that have been given by God. Secondly, the contravention of the Bible by ecclesiastical authority. Now, our confession deals specifically here in paragraph two with this implicit faith and absolute and blind obedience that has in its view Roman Catholicism. We'll look at that in just a moment. But the contravention of the Bible by ecclesiastical authority. 
They don't have the right to do that. They don't have the right to command things that God has not commanded. It's just that simple. And when it comes to this, we need to understand that this isn't something unique to Roman Catholicism. There is a Protestant popery as well. I don't mean popery, the stuff that smells good in your bathroom, but I mean popery, the guy with the big hat and the big stick that sits on allegedly Peter's throne in Rome. There is Protestant popery as well, and oftentimes it obtains in churches that don't have a robust confession of faith. Basically, the pastor ends up as the pope, or in those places where they're cultic. I mean, the man who commands you to drink Kool-Aid is exercising, uh, uh, exercising uh, uh, tyranny over you in a way that God has, has not ordained. So when it comes to the contravention of the Bible, civil authority can't do it, neither can ecclesiastical authority. But I want to one-up this and say the contravention of the Bible by fellow believers. And I think this is where we usually sort of wage the war when it comes to Christian liberty. Well, you know, so-and-so does this, and I don't think it's right, and therefore I'm going to talk about him. Well, if it's wrong according to God's word, then you are free to go to him in the manner that God's word specifies and deal with him in a manner that's consistent with your confession of faith. There is this judgmental attitude that the people of God have. We take our suggestions, we take our preferences, we take our recommendations, and we give them the authority of thus saith the Lord. Charles Hodge in his Systematic Theology made this very perceptive observation. He says, it is a common saying that every man has a pope in his own bosom. That is, the disposition to lord it over God's heritage is almost universal. Men wish to have their opinions on moral questions made into laws to bind the consciences of their brethren. Now, if that has never been your experience, then this study isn't for you. But, you know, maybe pretend to be awake for the rest of it. But that typically happens. That happens a lot. Let me just read that again. The disposition to lord it over God's heritage is almost universal. Men wish to have their opinions on moral questions made into laws to bind the consciences of their brethren. Now, let's go to Matthew's gospel. Some work in the scriptures to sort of look at this. Matthew's gospel, chapter 7. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. I think it's uh, profitable to look at a few texts to sort of substantiate this proposition, that God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. So Matthew chapter 7 is a very familiar passage. In fact, 7-1 is probably one of those passages that is often you know, quoted but very much misinterpreted. So notice in 7.1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. So the first thing I want to look at with reference to this passage is the legitimacy of judgment. 
You say, Butler, that doesn't seem right because Jesus says in verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. That seems to contradict your statement that this does substantiate judgment. Well, this isn't the only passage in the scripture, and this passage of scripture actually does condone judging. But notice first in this passage of scripture, verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now we know Jesus doesn't have an ax to grind with canines and, and, and pigs. He's talking about human beings there. He's talking about people. He's talking about people that you've made a judgment call on that you are no longer going to give them gospel truth because of the way that they treat God or they treat you. So that's a judgment for you to determine, hey, this person's a dog. Now, I'm not suggesting this is an easy determination. When do I cut someone off and consider them a dog or a pig? That's up to you and God. But the fact is, is that Jesus assumes that we can identify dogs and pigs and that we will not throw our pearls before them. Secondly, we are called to judge in matters of doctrinal orthodoxy. Look at chapter 7 and verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. If Matthew 7.1 teaches what many think Matthew 7.1 teaches, then we couldn't do Matthew 7.15. We couldn't say to somebody, you're actually a wolf. You're not a sheep. You're a wolf and you're ravenous and you're out to destroy people. What, what happens when you tell a wolf that? Judge not lest you be judged. See, they take the wrong interpretation of 7.1. So whatever Jesus means there in that section from 7.1 to, uh, to 5, it doesn't mean no judgment ever. Thirdly, we are called to judge in matters of church discipline. Later in Matthew 18, the Lord gives specific instruction on how to deal with sinning brethren. If your brother sins against you, go to him. If he hears you, you want your brethren, a brother. If he doesn't hear, take two or three witnesses. If he doesn't hear them, tell it to the church. If he doesn't hear the church, what happens? Does he say, judge not lest you be judged? No, you tell him or you treat him like a heathen and a tax collector. You excommunicate him. That's a judgment, brethren. We are as well called to judge in matters concerning the sins and the eldership. 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's very clear. Do not bring an accusation against an elder except with two or three witnesses. So there is that reality that people in the church see sin in their elders and they go to them. They do it in the proper way, but they do it. That's a judgment call. And then we are called as well to judge in civil disputes in the church, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, and then in society. Unless we're Anabaptists and we argue that a Christian can never serve in civil government. But we're not Anabaptists and we believe that Christians can serve in civil government. What if one of our young men or women rises up and they get that promotion and they become a judge someday? That's okay. That's righteous behavior. That's good. Well, what are they going to be doing in those judgments? They're going to be judging. And if the defendant says, judge not lest you be judged, you're going to get laughed right out of the court into the prison cell. So, so what Jesus means in 7, 1 to 5 is not that there's no time ever for judgment. Remember, to back up a little bit in terms of the Sermon on the Mount, much of what Jesus is doing is that he's doing what, uh, uh, dealing with things that happen in our interpersonal day-to-day -day relationships. In fact, turn back to Matthew chapter 5, just to show, sort of show this. 
specifically in verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you and turn uh, from him who wants to borrow from you. Do not turn away. That's interpersonal relationships. That's not the obliteration of the civil state. That's not telling you can't have a big canine in your backyard to stop criminal offenders. Doesn't mean you take all the locks off your window. Doesn't mean you take all the guns out of your house. Oh, just turn the other cheek. Somebody comes in to rob you or to rape from you or do, do horrible things. Oh yeah, my daughter's down in the, you know, the, the, the last room on the left. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about a judgmental sort of uh, nitpicky attitude in our interpersonal relationships. And that's what he's doing here in chapter seven at verses one to five. The command forbids a nitpicking, fault-finding, petty approach to our brother's shortcomings. And interestingly, this is what usually happens with the, you know, God's policemen that are out there to enforce all their own preferences. They get nitpicky, they're fault-finding, and they're petty. Ryle says in this passage, what our Lord means to condemn is a censorious and fault-finding spirit, a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference. Remember that phrase, matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. This is what our Lord forbids. It was common among the, the Pharisees. Now, matters of indifference is what we call adiaphora. And adiaphora simply means things indifferent. There are many things that the Bible commands very specifically by way of prohibition and then positive aspect. Do not murder, for instance. We're not supposed to go out and kill people. It's pretty clear, pretty simple. By way of implication, we're supposed to promote health and supposed to promote life. But there's a lot of things that the Bible doesn't specifically address. Things indifferent. And the traditional approach to things indifferent is that if God has not condemned them in his word, then it's okay to do that. In other words, if it's not sin, if there's not chapter and verse, if there is not a particular commandment that you are transgressing, God in his kindness and in his grace has given you liberty. That's with life. When it comes to worship, the principle is a bit different. With reference to worship, we're only to do what God has commanded to do. But in the matter of life, if God hasn't forbidden us from, say, having a beer, to be quite controversial here, then we're free to have a beer. We're not free to have 25 beers because the Bible speaks to that. It condemns drunkenness, but it doesn't condemn a moderate use of alcohol. And so what we have is adiaphora, things indifferent, things that God has not addressed, not because he doesn't have attention to detail, but because he's not a micromanager. As the, the more you learn of who God is, the more you'll see that the, the civil state is absolutely contrary to God. So when it comes to this, adiaphora or things indifferent, they're matters not regarded as essential to faith, but nevertheless as permissible for Christians or allowed by the church. I don't like that allowed by the church. I pulled this definition off the internet. What is specifically, th this I think was key though, what is specifically considered adiaphora depends on the specific theology in view. 
What is considered adiaphora is dependent upon the theology in view. And usually it's my theology or my church's theology, and therefore that's not adiaphora. You need to kowtow and, 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 and hold the line. So basically what you have that Jesus is condemning is an uh, unbiblical judgmentalism. And I know probably that's not the best way to do this, but it was the only way I could think of. You've got righteous judgment that we've just talked about before. Then you've got this judgmentalism. And this judgmentalism is what oftentimes brings a breach between the people of God at the level of adiaphora or things indifferent. Things that, that God hasn't condemned. Things that, that God has left up to the liberty of conscience. And so what typically happens is that believers see their preferences as God's commandments. Now, you can hold to your preferences. I can hold to my preferences. That's perfectly acceptable. That, that's okay. Hear me. I'm not condemning your preferences. I'm condemning the attitude that lifts preferences up to the arena of thus saith the Lord. That's problematic. That's when we, we go against God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and command, commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. If God doesn't say thou must not and there's not a breach in some other way, then you have freedom under God to do that. Renahan says, if a commandment requires thoughts or actions that contravene the word of God or extend beyond its boundaries, there is no religious obligation in it. That's the point. You're not religiously obligated to civil or ecclesiastical tyranny that is operating in addition to or contrary to the word of God. You're just not. Again, you may get in trouble from the civil or the ecclesiastical authority. I mean, if you go to certain churches and you have a beer at the fellowship lunch, they're probably going to deal with you in a very severe and harsh way. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to tell you everything's going to be hunky-dory. But you do have freedom of conscience before God. Now, Paul speaks to having a beer in front of people that don't want you to do that in Romans chapter 14. It's the doctrine of the weaker and stronger brother. We're going to get there in just a moment. But we are not to unnecessarily offend. We're not supposed to parade our liberties in such a way that the brethren stumble. That's not righteous either. So a believer will sometimes see his preferences as God's commandments, and then the believer will see his brother exercising a different preference. And so what happens? Brother number one judges brother number two. And if this has never happened to you, praise God Almighty, I hope it never does. Another passage that I think is helpful in this discussion is John's Gospel, John chapter 7. I want to end this section, that, that clause, God alone is Lord of the conscience and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in, any, uh, in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it with the Lord's corrective to the judgmentalism of believers and then the apostles' corrective to the uh, uh, judgmentalism of believers. The Lord's corrective is not spoken to believers, but the principle is certainly appropriate for believers. Notice in John 7, specifically at verse 19, Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? 
The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses therefore gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Now here's the principle. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So the prohibition is do not judge according to appearance. In the context, the appearance of Sabbath breaking on the part of the Savior who healed a man on the Sabbath day. You, you just had this visceral, visceral reaction. People don't usually do that. They, they don't heal people on the Sabbath day. Ergo, he must be in sin. He's transgressing the commandment of God. He's breaking the commandment of God. And so the principle, do not judge according to appearance. One of the identifiers of Messiah or descriptors of Messiah in uh, the prophet Isaiah is that he would be blind. And so there was a Jewish expectation of a blind savior. The idea was blind in judgment, blind in justice. He doesn't judge with partiality. He doesn't judge based on your economic status. He doesn't judge based on whether you're rich or you're poor. He judges like Lady Justice with a blindfold on. It's all about the facts. And when the facts are in and the facts are adjudicated and the facts are then processed, then the, 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 the judgment can be rendered. So many passages in the Old Testament, Exodus 23, 1 to 3 and verse 6, Leviticus 19, 15, Deuteronomy 1, 17, 10, 17, 16, 19. This is a judging according to appearance. Jesus condemns that. Again, take our specific situation. You see brother so-and-so doing something and you immediately conclude that brother so-and-so's in sin. Well, you shouldn't immediately conclude that unless you got good reason and validation in the scriptures of the Old or New Testaments to confirm that brother so-and-so's in sin. How many times have we condemned somebody in sin and they haven't been in sin? How many times have we been rash in our judgment and somebody's not guilty? So we need to be careful that we don't judge according to appearance. We don't just look at the surface level situation. Solomon speaks to this in Proverbs 18. He says the first to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. You hear the first side of the story, man, that guy's guilty. And then the guilty guy comes along, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I was, you know, in, in Ottawa on the night of the robbery in Chilliwack. It couldn't have been me. I got an alibi. But, 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 no, 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 no buts. You got to judge with righteous judgment. So the prohibition, do not judge according to appearance, then the positive aspect, but judge with righteous judgment. Jesus assumes that we're going to judge and even commands that we do so. But our judgment must be regulated by the word of God. So back to the statement, and hath left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men, which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. If we are going to condemn a brother or a sister for sin, or if we're going to look down our noses on a brother or a sister because they don't do it the way we do it, we better have chapter and verse to substantiate and corroborate that, or else we've overstepped because God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And if that person is willing to stand before Jesus Christ and give an account for the deeds that they have done, you're not the boss of them. And that's the emphasis in the passage. 
So with reference to this, the person guilty of this particular offense judges according to their own whims, their own preferences, their own prejudices, and not according to biblical law. They do what James condemns in James 2, 12 and 13. So speak and so do, as those who will be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the Lord corrects this censorious spirit by highlighting that you're not supposed to judge according to appearance, but you're supposed to judge with righteous judgment. What's the standard for righteous judgment? The Word of God. Those things that are in the Word of God, contained in it. And then the Apostles' Corrective is in Romans 14. Romans 14. There's a lot there. We'll just summarize a few key points. Other places that speak to liberty is 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, with reference to meat offered up to idols and so on. But here specifically in Romans 14, again, the context in verses 1 to 13 is liberty, adiaphora, those things that, that shouldn't be escalated to the point where we've got a big problem between weaker brethren and, and stronger brethren. Notice in verse 1, receive one who is weak in faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So the, the, the context specifically is about eating meats in verses 2 and 3. Likely a reference to Jewish food laws. Not likely filet mignon or, you know, a pork steak or anything like that. It's things that were associated with the old covenant cult in terms of sacrificial meat. I think that's what's happening in 1 Corinthians as well, at least in a few places. So the specific issue here is food laws and then the observance of the Jewish calendar in verses 5 and 6. Remember, that's what sort of identified the old covenant people of God. We've seen that in our studies in the book of Leviticus, the holiness code. What separated them from the pagans or the heathen around them? It was these sorts of things, what they ate, how they worshiped, when they worshiped, all those things put them apart as a holy nation, a different people, a sanctified people. And so the apostle says in this new covenant era, it's not about meats because that's no longer in play. And it's not about the calendar. That's no longer in play either. So what we have here is a dispute over weaker brethren and over stronger brethren. And notice, in this context, the weaker brother is the one who won't eat the meat. The stronger brother is the one who will eat the meat. But notice the tendency that both groups have to sin against God. Both groups have the tendency to sin against God. Notice in verse 2, For one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. So what's that mean? You don't eat like I do. You don't see your freedom in Jesus like I do. You're, you know, you're a loser. You're, you're a nothing. You, you haven't come to embrace that, that blessed freedom that you have in Jesus. Paul says, don't do that. You're not supposed to parade your liberty in such a way that you despise a brother for whom Jesus died. He's weaker. He's not an unbeliever. He's not an apostate. He's not a reprobate. Now, I would say that it's the goal to get the weaker to the stronger level. I think that's always helpful. Weaker brethren should want to get stronger and have their consciences informed by the Word of God so they're not scrupling over things that needn't be scrupled over. So if the stronger brother has the tendency to despise the weaker, 
What do you think the weaker brother's tendency is with reference to the stronger? Well, he says that in 3b. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. How dare you eat that? That's atrocious. There is that tendency to judge. There is that tendency to condemn. There is that tendency to say, oh, I, I don't think that's liberty, but rather I think that's an abuse, and I think that's wrong, and I think that's bad. Notice how Paul deals with that. He says, for God has received him. Both groups, the weaker brother, the stronger brother. So stronger brothers don't despise the weaker brother. Weaker brother don't judge the stronger brother. Why? God has received him. And then he says, who are you to judge another's servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be, will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. You see the principle there? It, again, we're not talking about adultery. We're not talking about murder. We're not talking transgression or lack of conformity unto the Ten Commandments. We're talking about things indifferent. In a new covenant situation, adiaphora includes things sacrificed in the old covenant. That what, which was at one point uh, stipulated only for priestly consumption or associated with a particular sacrifice, that's not the way it is in the new covenant. In fact, Paul goes so far in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10 to say that it's okay to eat meat if you bought it in a market where it had been previously used in sacrifice to a, to a pagan god, to an idol. You know how he deals with that? Don't ask questions for your own conscience sake. In other words, when you sit down at the table, don't say, where'd you get this? Was this meat that was previously used in pagan sacrifice? If you don't want the answer, don't ask the question, is essentially what Paul is saying. And then the final principle that we see there in verses 12 and 13, so then each of us shall give account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. And again, Paul makes that very clear. 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10. He says, if eating meat as a strong brother makes my weaker brother offended, then I will gladly give up meat. In other words, he's not going to parade his liberty around in front of his weaker brother. He's not going to celebrate it. Hey, come on over. We're going to have beers and meat that was offered up to idols. I want you to participate in it. No, he doesn't do that. He's willing to forego that for the sake of the weaker brother. So, so this idea of liberty issues is not something unique to our own era, but it was happening in that time as well. But I just want to end here quickly. I, we're not going to get to paragraph three. But, but look, at, look at what we see here in, in paragraph two. So after that statement that we just teased out, so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience, where they put the onus, there's a responsibility for the professing people of God to know God's truth. There is a responsibility on the part of the professing people of God to know God's truth. They are to obey His commandments, spirit-filled, grace-empowered obedience to that law. Not for justification, but because we've been justified. But that believer as well must be able to see or spot an encroachment or a contravention of the Word of God. And when he does that, he is duty-bound not to subject himself to that. So that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. 
We rightly condemn false teachers, and we should. We rightly condemn false preachers, and well, we should. But as well, the Bible seems to imagine or envision that there is a responsibility that believers have with reference to understanding the truth. If the guy is an authoritarian preacher and he's commanding you things contrary to the word of God, not only are you not supposed to be subject to that, one wonders why you continue to sit under that. Because there is a responsibility so that to believe such doctrines or obey such commands out of conscience is to betray true liberty of conscience. If you go with something that is beside the word or contrary to the word, you're actually betraying liberty of conscience. And this idea of requiring an, an implicit faith, an absolute and blind obedience, is to destroy liberty of conscience and reason also is calculated specifically against Roman Catholicism. I guess we can deal with paragraph three. Paragraph three says, don't hide behind Christian liberty to sin. Don't hide behind Christian liberty to sin. Christian liberty does not mean the freedom to sin. Christian liberty means the freedom to serve God responsibly and acceptably and earnestly and wholeheartedly. So it is not a cloak for you to engage in sin. Say, well, that's my liberty. You're always under the commandments of God. You're always regulated by the word of God. The emphasis is upon the civil state or the ecclesiastical authority that commands you something beside or contrary to the word of God. Well, let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this wonderful summary of Christian doctrine that we find here in chapter 21. We know that this certainly doesn't answer all the questions or solve every problem, but help us to reflect upon these things. Help us to, to search our own hearts and root out that pope that is in our bosom and help us to be faithful brothers and sisters, not nitpicking and fault-finding and censorious, but give us grace, Lord God, to live in a manner that is consistent with what we've seen tonight. We pray for your blessing upon Upon our church. We pray that you would cause us all to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace and to always make the main thing the main thing, even Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And we pray in His most blessed name. Amen. Well, if anybody has any questions or comments, <laughs> we can save that for after Africa. I'm just kidding. Sure, absolutely. And now I'm supposing that there's plenty of different opinions. Yes. So what, what's, how do you deal with that in a wise way? Well, I think you first embrace that there's going to be different opinions, because I think that is a wise way. When it comes to the express or explicit statements of Scripture, nobody should have any difference of opinion on you shall not murder. But when it comes to things necessarily contained, that gives the concrete you know, emphasis to whatever is justly deduced by good and necessary consequence is binding is the word of God. But interpreters of scripture are not infallible. And sometimes they make mistakes and sometimes they're past 
or their experiences or things they have seen hit, you know, affect their exegesis of texts. I think that's you know, one of the emphases there in John 7. Do not judge according to appearance. In other words, it's going to take work. It's going to take effort. But understanding that sometimes good men do disagree on things, I think is a very helpful thing. Um, you know, because I think when you recognize that, you're already in a position to not then lord things over the consciences of others. So if you, you, you get what you asked in terms of, you know, an answer, I think that was the answer. I think having that understanding that we're not infallible interpreters of Scripture, that good men have disagreed on things, but ultimately it is the Word of God upon which we stand. And those things that are explicitly stated, easier, implicitly stated, easy-ish. Um, but the further you get away, and that's usually where the battles come. I've always thought, you know, in terms of applying Scripture, you know, if you read Puritans, you can read, you know, the doctrine of the sermon, and, you know, you've got application, 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 application. You know, yeah, kind of does connect in some way. I've always thought in preaching, you throw a you know, pebble or a rock in the pond, you get those circles that kind of move outward. The further out those circles go, the more difficult it is to root it or keep it rooted in the text. So explicit, we shouldn't have a problem. Implicit, we really shouldn't. Um, especially in our position, 21st century creeds, confessions, you know, uh, commentaries and, and theologies that would fill this building a you know, thousand times over. Um, at this point, we should be, okay, it's probably okay to have a beer with your pizza, but for whatever reason, that's still a tough one. Um, so, so I think just recognizing that, yeah, we can have disagreements and we shouldn't condemn each other to the pit of hell over it. When you, know, when you search the scriptures, there's not a lot of condemnation of the pit of hell in sanctification matters. There is in justification matters, but compare the opening of 1 Corinthians and Galatians. 1 Corinthians, Paul speaks glowingly of the church at Corinth, glowingly, wonderfully, positively. But when you read through Corinthians, what did they have going on there? It's reported among you that somebody had his father's wife, he has to prohibit them from temple prostitution, the whole liberty thing, the abuse at the supper. You know, there's a lot going on there, sanctification-wise. Galatians, right out of the chute, I marvel that you're so quickly turning away from him who called you in the grace of God. That, I'm not saying go ahead and sin. I'm not saying, you know, sanctification doesn't matter. But I am saying that when it comes to the condemnation that you see in Scripture, it's usually at the level of those sort of primary doctrines that, that mean salvation or not. So when we get, you know, sort of at the bottom here, you know, you got the top, you know, justification, Trinity, Christology. When you get down to eschatology, we really shouldn't be condemning each other to hell. When it comes to, you know, what we eat or what we wear, and again, we need to keep that in mind as well because the Bible does present principles of modesty in terms of dress. So there are things that, you know, good exegesis will deal with. Yes. I was, was going to say, uh, in Baptist uh, symbolics, we have a strong doctrine of soul liberty as well. 
So we have to bear this in mind that our tradition has historically emphasized an individual history in terms of soteriology because we don't believe in covenant children and therefore in sanctification because we want everyone to be persuaded in his own mind. And so there's, just, there's supposed to be a peaceful disposition before anything else can be debated such as the beer and pizza or whatever. So that's like the premise. Now in terms of arbitrariness, I'm finding in certain theological discussions there's an arbitrary limit as to how much implicit argument is permitted. And I think that's a problem to where, just because there's like five steps in my argument, maybe there's two steps in yours, that doesn't automatically mean I'm wrong. It just means I've done more homework to go from A to E instead of A to B. So that would be the other kind of thing for that. And then lastly, um, in Renekin's chapter, it talks a bit about how there's a risk of people destroying God's authority, that there's a theology proper issue here. We're trying to protect the Godhood of God here. Yeah. And that Rome had, quote, dethroned God by inserting their uh, clumsy fingers into conscience issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it says, it says in the Bible, it's okay to drink wine. One glass of wine is fine, but you're drinking wine. Yeah. Moderation. You're going to be an alcoholic, right? It says in the Bible, drink one wine.